Thank you, folks, and welcome again. We're glad you're here. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. I want you to know that when I was a little kid, uh, growing up in the early to mid-50s, uh, we had a, one of those big, expensive black and white TVs that was all fuzzy and uh, cost a fortune. Uh, one of the programs my whole family had gathered together to watch every week was the Hit Parade. How many of you remember the Hit Parade on TV? They had four different people, a couple of men, a couple of wing, women that sang the seven most popular songs that week. So we would have our favorite song, and we wanted to see where it was, and we'd watch, and we'd go from seven down to number one. And some of them were only on there a week or so, and some seemed to be on there forever. And one song that um, I thought was really great, I loved it. It was about God. It just had a very short uh, title, He. And it talked about He, God that he can turn the tide and calm the angry seas. He can hang the stars. He can do some amazing things. But one of the verses that I remember, it says that he can touch a tree and turn its leaves to gold. He knows every lie that you and I have told. Though it makes him sad to see the way we live, he will always say, I forgive. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Gave me that warm, fuzzy feeling. Uh, kind of like Santa Claus. You know, you got to be good. If you're good, then you're going to get good things. If not, you get a lump of coal or something like that. Better watch out. You know, Santa Claus is coming. He knows when you're asleep. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. But the truth is, I was an honorary young kid. You can't imagine that, but I was. And yet I got as much as anybody else on Christmas. I, I figured there's, there's not much to that. Santa Claus is, is easy. He, he makes all these claims, but then he's always going to deliver in the end. And that's what that song says. Though it makes him sad to see the way we live, we lie, we cheat, we steal, we do all kinds of horrible things. We know to do better, but we do the wrong things. But it doesn't matter. In the end, he'll always say, I forgive. I felt good about that <laughs> because I had a lot to be forgiven. And Marge and I were raised about four miles north of here at the little Methodist church in Lewis, which is now a residence. You'd never know it was ever a church. And I was taught that pretty much that's the way God is. He's given us a lot of rules. In the Old Testament, we have the Ten Commandments. We have the 23rd Psalm. Uh, in the New Testament, we have the Sermon on the Mount. We have the Golden Rule. And it teaches us how we're supposed to live, what his standards are, the things we're not supposed to do. And I recognize that I was falling short from my earliest memories, but it gave me a, a sense of assurance knowing that even though God wants me to live at this level and I'm living at this level, probably it's a whole lot farther apart than that, that it's okay in the end, he will always say, I forgive. How many of you have heard the saying that a loving God could never send anyone to hell? Of course. That, that's the kind of God we want to serve. That's the kind of God we, we visualize in our own minds. But is that, in fact, what the Scripture says? Now, from verse 17 to verse 48, 
Christ lays out, it's almost like a court case, a, a lawyer pleading his case for man's situation and how he might obtain righteousness. That's why I've entitled this, The Question of Righteousness. And he makes his opening statement, if you will, like a good attorney will do, um, from verse 17 down here through about verse 20. And he says, Do not think that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you that heaven and earth will uh, pass away, will not pass away, for one until heaven and earth pass away, one shot or one tittle, a one little, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and the jot or the yod is like an apostrophe. You can hardly see it. And then the stroke or the tittle is just a little line that goes beyond another line. Insignificant, apparently, but he says none of that will change. Uh, not a, a jot, not a tittle, not a, not a letter, not a line will pass away by any means. Uh, until all is fulfilled. We, we were talking about in Sunday school, God can be tough. He can be mean. He is just. He is condemning of wickedness. And he, it was that God of the Old Testament that brought the flood that killed the entire human race and all the inhabitants of the world except for one family. That's a mean God. The same God that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and all those people because of its sin. The same God that destroyed the nation of Egypt because of its abuse of God's people for 400 years. The same God that drove out all the Canaanites and killed multitudes of them when Joshua brought the people into the land. He was a mean God. But we got the idea that in the New Testament, God becomes a Christian. <laughs> and he's loving and he's kind and he's merciful and he's long-suffering and forgiving. And though it makes him sad to see the way we live, he'll always say, I forgive. That's not what he says here. He says, nothing's passing away. God hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he still has the same judgment. He still has the same condemnation for sin. And it's um, it not changed. And then he talks about those who uh, practice these things, God would bless. Those who distort these things, God's going to curse. There'll be some who will be great in the kingdom of God. Some will be much lesser in God's kingdom. And he, that he wraps up his opening statement in verse 20 by saying, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This first point here is what does God require? He doesn't require that we be good. He doesn't require that we be excellent. He requires that we be completely righteous. He says your righteousness has to be greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, I know what you're thinking. Christ called the scribes and the Pharisees a bunch of hypocrites, blind guides, whited sepulchers. So, so they must be some really wicked people. But if you study the history here, the scribes and the Pharisees, as far as the people were concerned, were the most righteous people on the planet. They didn't live like other people lived. The average Pharisee and scribe, 
They prayed three times every day without exception. They fasted two days out of every week without food. They paid 10% of everything they earned to the Lord. Plus all the feast days, the fast days, the new moons, the Sabbath, the sacrifices, the food restrictions, they did it all. And people looked at the Pharisees as walking several feet above the ground. These were the righteous ones. And yet Jesus says, if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be more righteous than they. You have no hope of entering the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Wow. That's saying a lot. You say, well, how, how can that be? And then, as a good attorney would do, he presents, after his opening statement, the body of evidence. And from verse 21 down through verse 47, he gives us six different scenarios where the law says, where you have heard, this is what you're supposed to do. And then he says, but from God's perspective, let's look at it differently. So uh, let's just take a look at some of these. In verses 21 through 26, it's concerning murder. And it says, you have heard that it was said in those days of old, <clears throat> you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. Well, that makes sense. That's one of the Ten Commandments, and it's one of the things that's the most atrocious things we can think of. One of the worst sins is murdering someone. But then he says, but I say unto you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause is in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> um, I looked it up one time, and it means to be empty-headed, to be an airhead. Have you ever thought of someone like that? Your brother or your friend or your neighbor or, or maybe your dad? What an airhead. Well, you're, you're, in, you're in big danger then. And if you call someone a fool, you're in danger of hellfire. How many of us could say, I'm good here. No judgment there. I've, I've avoided all of that. Boy, not me. When I listen to the news and I, I think about some of the stuff that's coming out of Washington and some of the candidates for the next presidential election, I think, what a bunch of fools. Those airheads. Well, according to God, I don't want to murder them. I just want then a verse in Psalms that says, uh, may his days be few and may someone else take his place. I, <laughs> I prayed that a lot when Obama was president. I tell you, that <clears throat> I haven't wanted to do anybody any real harm. I've never tried to murder anyone, never tried to hurt anyone on purpose. But man, I don't meet God's standards. I, I've had animosity. I've been angry. I thought people foolish. And if God judged me for this commandment, I would be guilty. I wonder if anybody else would have to say, me too. I never murdered anybody, but whew. I haven't fulfilled the spirit of the law that God requires. Then the second one is concerning adultery, verses 27 down through 30. You have heard that it was told beforehand, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that whoever looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then it goes on to say that um, you ought to be so concerned about eternal life that whatever gets in your way, it needs to be eliminated. Pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, cut off your foot. Don't let anything keep you from going to heaven. Well, I'm here to tell you that I've never committed adultery. In over 55 years, haven't even come close. I haven't touched a woman inappropriately or spoken inappropriately, um, or a man either, by the way. We need to add that in these days. Um, I haven't done that. So I'm free. Haven't committed adultery. But then he says, but if you've ever looked on someone to lust, if you've ever fantasized, if you've ever let those thoughts go away, uh, you're just as guilty as someone who has committed adultery. Well, is there a healthy uh, male on the earth that is not guilty of lustful thoughts? There isn't. I mean, it's part of our sin nature to take something that God created for the beauty of the marriage relationship and distort it into lustful thoughts. And it's not just men. I understand that women have a little trouble with their thinking as well. I, I would say, I'm good. Never murdered anybody, never committed adultery, but I'm as guilty as sin in both cases. The only one that I might escape out of the sixth is the next one, considering divorce. Verses 31 and 32. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, the word is fornication, he causes her to commit adultery. And whoever uh, marries a woman uh, who is divorced commits adultery. Well, never committed adultery. Well, haven't committed adultery. I've never been divorced. We've been married for 55 years. Marge and I have never even talked about divorce. We've considered murder and suicide, but we've <laughs> never talked about divorce. That's just something we ain't going to do. But we have five children, and two of the five have gone through tragic, painful, hurtful divorces. And the statistics show that right at 50% of marriages, including Christian couples, wind up in divorce as well. And I'm sure people here, I don't know who you are, I don't judge you by any means, but divorce happens. And for all kinds of reasons. But Christ limits it. Unless there's been sexual immorality, there's no cause for divorce. And divorce is mentioned by Paul in Romans and 1 Corinthians and elsewhere. And there isn't even any exception at all. It's just if you're married, you need to stay married until one of you passes away and then you can marry somebody else. That's, that's God's plan for marriage. But divorce happens. And Christ says it's very narrow. And he doesn't make a lot of exceptions. Uh, I was talking with a couple and they were planning to get divorced. And I said, well, what's the reason? Has there been sexual immorality? Has there been abuse and abandonment? No, no, no. We're just incompatible. He said, I don't make enough income, and she's not patable. And so we, we just can't, can't make it work. 
it didn't happen exactly like that, but that was the essence of uh, people making all kinds of excuses. So uh, many people would fail here. And even those that haven't got a divorce, they live kind of as though they were, separate, don't love, don't communicate, don't share. They just coexist. So we fail in that one as well. The next one is concerning honesty. And as we read verses 33 through 37, at least it starts out again. I, uh, you have heard that it was said uh, in those of, of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. False swearing, bearing false witness, telling lies, exaggerating. But I say to you, you're not to swear by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his uh, footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. In fact, he says, don't swear by anything, by your head or by anything else, because you can't change anything, you can't control it. Why did they swear by certain uh, exalted things? Jerusalem, the temple, the gold of the temple. It was because their lives were not honest. They didn't regularly tell the truth. And in order to enforce the validity of what one is saying, they would swear. Have you ever done that as a kid? Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a red hot needle in my eye if I'm not telling you the truth. Why do we have to do that? It's because we have not always been honest and people suspect we're not telling them the truth. And so we want to promise you, as God is my witness, I swear on a stack of Bibles that this is so. It's because we have prevaricated, we have falsified, we have exaggerated. Even from the pulpit, preachers are known to do this. I've probably done it myself, trying to get a point across. I want that to really be impactful, and so I might embellish it a little, might make it sound a little more dramatic. Uh, I remember when I was in Africa uh, teaching in a seminary over there, uh, our host missionary took us out to eat, and we met this guy who was a pastor who was there working in another ministry, and we were 20 miles from the equator, but his name was Jack. He was, he was, and he was an outgoing guy, gregarious sort of guy, and he, he was telling me of some of his preaching, and I heard him preach one time, uh, and the illustrations just couldn't be so. I knew some of the facts, and that didn't happen. And later on, I was talking to him. I said, Jack, uh, about that illustration, he says, I know what you're going to say, but I've got a philosophy. I never let the truth get in the way of a good illustration. I'm going to make it as dramatic as possible to get my point across. God said, don't do that. If you want to please me, don't swear by this or that or anything else. But we see <clears throat> verse 36. It says, Nor shall you swear by your head because you cannot uh, make one hair white or black. You can't make it hold on like it should. It flees. My crew cut bailed out long ago. I have no control over that. He says, But let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Anything beyond that is from the evil one. 
if you're going to please God, you are going to be absolutely honest. And when you say yes, everyone knows that's absolutely the truth. And you don't have to swear. You don't have to embellish. You don't have to make all kinds of exaggerations to order to get them to believe what you're saying. And if you say no, everybody knows it's no. And how many of us as parents have been uh, guilty of threatening our kids to nail their hide to the wall or whatever? Uh, we make these threats. We, we make these commandments and so on. But we don't mean it. And they know we don't mean it. And they go ahead and do what they want to. And, and we say, oh, and then we, we don't follow through. God wants us to be absolutely honest. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Beyond that, it's all of the devil. Well, I fail there. I think you probably do too. The next one is that of retaliation. Verses 38 through 42. <clears throat> it says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If someone does you wrong, you get them back. Don't let anybody take advantage of you. Make sure you settle the score. But I tell you not to resist the evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you, take away your tunic or your shirt, well, give him your coat as well. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go two. This referred to the Roman soldiers who could impress a Jewish citizen to carry his pack for a mile. And it would be filled with weapons and provisions and who knows what. It would be very heavy. And the Romans ruled, and so you would have to carry it for a mile. And the main roads had mile markers. But at, at the end of that mile, you could toss that down, and you didn't have to carry it anymore. But he says if he compels you to carry it one, carry it two. And, and give to him who asks. And from him who wants to borrow... From you, do not turn away. He's asking us to do things that are unreasonable. Um, we need to be open and willing and forgiving and not resentful and never try to retaliate. And I doubt that many of you have plotted how you can hurt someone physically or financially, but how many of us, we grant ourselves the right to be resentful, to hold a grudge, to be bitter about something someone has said or done toward us in the past. We feel like that's all right. But he says, no, 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 no. You can't hold any of that if you're going to please me. If you're going to fulfill the spirit of the law, you cannot have any kind of animosity or any thought of revenge or retaliation toward anyone ever. Well, I fail again. And maybe there's some of you who do that as well. The last one is concerning neighborliness. Verse 43 says, You have heard that it was said that you'll love your neighbor but hate your enemy. But I say to you that you love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That's that's the last one of the Beatitudes that Trevor shared with us a couple of weeks ago. How can we do that? He goes on to say that, you know, 
if you're kind to someone or you greet someone, uh, big deal. Uh, the uh, tax collectors, who were the scum of the earth as far as the Jews were concerned, they do all of that. You need to be really neighborly. And you need to love those who hate you and pray for those. And in Romans chapter 12, Paul does the same kind of thing. Don't avenge yourself. Uh, I will repay, says the Lord. And that we are to do good for those who are enemies and pray for those. In so doing, heap coals of fire of conviction upon their heads. We might win some of the Christ by the way we behave. But I failed there as well. I love those that love me. <laughs> and I'm not real fond of those that don't like me. And I'm not real neighborly towards those who are not neighborly toward me. I, I fail in all of these. And Christ is saying these things, not telling us what we can do in order to obtain righteousness, but he's telling us that the things that characterize us that keep us far from true righteousness. We don't measure up to the scribes and Pharisees even. We certainly don't measure up to God's higher commands. And so his closing statement, and this is where the attorney wants to hammer home his uh, persuasion and wants to persuade, persuade them to vote accordingly, we find that in verse 48. He said, Therefore, be ye perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. That's what God requires of you and of me, that we be perfect. How many here would say, yep, that's me, I'm perfect? Uh, how many of you would say, I'm excellent? Or in the sight of God, I'm even really good. I'm afraid we'd be like those in that song, though it makes him sad to see the way we live. Does he always say, I forgive? He does not. He is an awesome God of justice. And unless there's righteousness in our account, we're not going to heaven. Well, um, I hope you've enjoyed this message. It's been real good and insightful, and we can go ahead and close. No, <laughs> I, I couldn't do that because there's more to say. Matthew doesn't record it here, but in the rest of Scripture and in the Gospel of John and elsewhere, uh, we see that God not only requires certain things of us, God provides certain things for us. And I want you to see that with me as well. What does God provide for us? First of all, righteousness apart from works. Righteousness apart from the law. And praise God that he does because in this passage in Matthew makes it very clear that, that we are not able to achieve that kind of righteousness that God requires. In fact, I think Trevor made mention of Romans chapter uh, 3 in his message a couple of weeks ago. Uh, beginning in verse 10, it says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeks after God. They've all gone out of the way, and together they become unprofitable. And there's none that does good, no, not one. 
So, will God always say, I forgive anyway? No, he will not. As we look down in verse 19, if you've got your Bibles open to Romans 3, it says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that by the righteousness of the law, we might achieve eternal salvation. No, it doesn't say that. We would like for it to say that, but it says, uh, it says unto us that in order that every mouth can be stopped and the whole world become guilty before God. There isn't anyone that achieves righteousness according to God's standard. And goes on in verse 20 and says, Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is a knowledge of sin. And in verse 23 it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And later on in Romans 6.23 it says, The wages of sin is death. So, we <clears throat> do not reach or obtain the righteousness of God. But look over to chapter 4 and verses 1 through 5, where God <laughs> and, and Paul uh, lays the case out where everyone, Jew, Gentile alike, is condemned before God's judgment. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 4 says, So then, shall we say, that Abraham, our father, was found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, by the law, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was appointed to him, accounted to him for righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. Abraham did God, did what God said. He left the the area of the Chaldeans and followed him up to Haran and then followed down into Israel, the land of the Canaanites, and he did what God said. But ultimately, Abraham was, was kind of a, a, twist, a twisted sort of guy. He'd lied about his wife on two different occasions, and uh, he was willing to go into his handmaid that he might bring forth a son that could be the son of the promise. And he wasn't perfect by any means. But the fact that Abraham believed God total trust in him his faith was counted for righteousness now to him who works the wage are, are not counted of grace but of debt if you're working to get to heaven God is not giving you anything you've earned it you've deserved it you have merited it by being righteous enough to merit salvation <laughs> but but it's not of grace but the Bible says that salvation is by grace through faith alone but a love, verse 5, but to him who does not work, that doesn't mean he never does any good works, but he doesn't try to present his works to God and say, here are my works, like Cain did. Here's all the vegetables I've, I've raised in. Here, accept this. Here's my righteousness. Here's my good deeds. Here's my faithfulness. But he doesn't do that. He does not work, but he believes in him who can justify, which means to declare righteous, those who are not. It says that to him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. I'd be the first to admit, by God's standards, I am ungodly. I'm a pretty decent guy as far as the world is concerned. But compared to God's standards, I'm ungodly. And I'm not about to present any good works to him 
until you might accept it and let me into heaven. But I believe in a God who can justify the ungodly, and that faith is counted for righteousness. That's what God provides. And the second thing is righteousness in exchange for sin. Our sin hangs over us like a mallet, ready to beat the brains out of us, ready to condemn us. It, we can't escape it. It's ever there uh, to condemn us. But God has provided an answer for that. And we find that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, for he, this is a different he from in that song, because uh, that, that he will forgive no matter what we do, but God is just and he requires just payment. He, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin to become sin for us. Not to commit sin, but become our sin, to identify with our sin in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. <laughs> Hallelujah. That is amazing. Uh, that's my favorite verse in all the Bible uh, to think that I, being ungodly, uh, could be declared righteous because Christ was willing to take my sin upon himself. I don't want to do this to the Bible, but uh, let's say that this, this Bible here <clears throat> contains all my sin. If it did, it'd have to be a whole lot thicker than this. Because I got plenty of sin. And it weighs me down. It condemns me. And over here is Christ, has no sin whatsoever, perfectly righteous. And he became my sin. And Isaiah chapter 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray, and we've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God took my sin and laid it on Jesus Christ. He took it to the cross. He paid the penalty. He died in my place. He was buried to put it away. He rose again in life and righteousness for me so that his righteousness could now be placed on me as a free gift. You get that? You know, I wonder if that makes sense to you. Could you say amen? amen. Oh, you can say it. I knew you could. I just don't hear that much around here, but it can be done. And then, lastly, what does he instruct us to do? These are the facts. This is truth. This is biblical. This is bared out in life. What does he instruct us to do? Well, there's lots of places, but probably the most simple is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. It says, He... Uh, speaking of Christ, and Daryl, you uh, talked a lot about the John chapter 1 in your message, uh, being the creator and the sustainer and having life and light and so on. And he came to bring that light, and he came into his own, the Bible says, but his own did not receive him. But to as many as received him, them gave he the right or authority to be called the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. I'm going to rearrange those words just a little bit, but there's three very important words. The first one is, you must believe. If you're taking notes, you must believe that these things are true. It's not what you hear out in the world. It's not part of our culture, but it's absolutely taught in Scripture, and the Holy Spirit confirms it in your heart. This is true. I am a sinner. I am not righteous. I can't obtain God's righteousness. His judgment is upon me, and if I die in this condition, I'm going to go to hell. 
I, I must believe that salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. And his death for me, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, uh, the offer that he gives me, I must believe that. But you know, it's not enough just to believe. The devil believes all that. He knows that's true. He knows the Bible better than we do. He knows history absolutely. And he and his demons tremble in fear at what they believe. Gives them no hope because... All they do is have an academic knowledge that, yes, that is so. The second thing is you must receive to as many as received him. There's a whole lot more to this business of salvation than just knowing truth. You must act on it. You must receive him. That means to personally appropriate these things in your life. Mars and I were talking earlier this week about a quote from Billy Graham. Someone, a critic, questioned him and said, Dr. Graham, uh, there's gospel all over the world. You preach it. Others preach it. It's on the airwaves. It's in books. It's on the radio. It's everywhere. If there's so much gospel, why is there still so much sin? How would you answer that? Billy Graham had a good answer. He says, you know, there's a whole lot of soap in the world. You can buy soap in different commodities, different sizes, different shapes in almost any store. You can get soap. There's soap everywhere. Why are there so many dirty people still on the planet? Well, the soap has to be applied. <laughs> you have to use it in order to cleanse away that dirt. And that's the way it is with the gospel. You can't just know what's out there. You must appropriate it into your own life and accept it humbly to do so. And then the last point is, it says, you will become. I think the outline says you must, uh, but I think a better word was you will. If you believe and you receive, you will become a child of God. And that's how God states it. There is no, no uh, contradiction here. He says, this is the truth. You accept this truth, you receive it, and you will become a child of God. In Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10, it says, uh, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes, with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not maybe, not possibly, but it'll happen. It's an equation that never fails. You believe it, you receive it, you will be saved. And how many of you could say, I've done that. I'm there. I'm a child of God. Amen. Hey, man. Lots of you. But there may be some of you here that say, you, you know, I'm, I'm still liking that song, He. I'm still believing in the exalted Santa Claus that if I do the best I can, even though I fall short a little, he'll always say I forgive. Hopefully you realize from Scripture that's not possible. And I would pray that you might be willing to humble yourself and to confess your sin and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. And perhaps today become that child of God. We're going to sing uh, in a bit, uh, come just as you are. You don't have to prepare yourself. You don't have to do any stuff to get ready. You just have to recognize, I'm a sinner and I'm in need and Jesus is the answer. And come just as you are. I'm going to pray and 
I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and, and you don't have to pray out loud or anything, but if this makes sense to you and you've never come to that place of faith, I'd like for you to just kind of chime in with me and in your own heart and mind, pray with me. Father, I realize <clears throat> that I can't be righteous. I can't meet your commands. You require to me be absolutely perfect, absolutely righteous, and I can't be, never will be able to. But I thank you that you love me in spite of my sin. And you sent Jesus Christ, your son, to this world uh, to teach and preach and do miracles. But most of all, you sent him to take my sin upon himself and pay that penalty and die in my place. And he rose again from the dead in life and righteousness. And he offers salvation as a free gift and righteousness that I could never obtain. Perfect righteousness, divine righteousness. And so, Lord, I'm willing to turn from my sin and any hope of personal merit to gain salvation and ask you to come into my heart and life, Lord Jesus. Forgive my sin. Cleanse my heart. Make me a child of God. Give me eternal life and a place in heaven when I die. I don't deserve it, but I thank you for it from the bottom of my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.